Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. On August 4th, 2016 in Denver, Ian O'Neill, a shareholder in the firm's intellectual property department focusing on technology transactions, licensing, advanced media, and privacy issues, and Emily Weber, a shareholder in the firm's healthcare group focusing on academic medicine and clinical research, data security compliance, and governance for personalized medical programs, recorded the second episode of their Health Tech Podcast series. This episode discusses the implications of the Federal Trade Commission's recently published Best Practices for Health App Development. This is Ian O'Neill, a shareholder over at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek. We are coming back with a follow-up podcast to our initial one regarding health tech. Again, quickly, I'm just a shareholder and the head of our advanced media technology transaction privacy group with a focus on digital health. And I am Emily Weber. I'm also a shareholder at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek. And I really work in the Academic Medical Center Teaching Hospital School of Medicine environment, but I also do a lot of work with technology transaction departments and with mobile health, especially on the privacy and security side. And if you uh, would like any more information about who we are and what we do, we did put out an initial podcast with all of that kind of laborious background that you can go back and download. But right now, as promised in that initial podcast, I think we're just going to dive in and discuss one specific topic today. And the topic that we're going to discuss is the new best practice guidelines that the FTC put out for digital health and health tech app developers. And so I have one question for you, Ian. Yeah. So how does the FTC regulate these sorts of devices? That's actually a really good question, especially given the events of last week with the Lab MD case. So today is the first week of August, and just a few days ago, so at the very start of August, the FTC did get reaffirmed in its authority to regulate privacy matters and data security and general access to technology via the LabMD case. For those who don't know, the LabMD case was a recent case in which the FTC asserted that it had the right to bring an enforcement action against LabMD, a health innovation, health technology company, for its privacy matters. And LabMD, after challenging the FTC's jurisdiction over its privacy concerns, asserting that, among other things, it did not have direct consumer application and therefore wasn't covered by the FTC Act, went up to appeal. And the appeal came down earlier this week and reaffirmed that, yes, the FTC does have jurisdiction over a very wide range of privacy and consumer practices, including health information privacy and the uh, marketing and use and application of health technology applications. So it sounds like like many apps and drugs and devices, there are numerous regulatory agencies that have jurisdiction over it. So maybe we can talk about this in one of our future podcasts about the agencies that do have jurisdiction, but real brief, it would be FTC, HHS through Office of Civil Rights. The CFPB now has also asserted rights over privacy. The FDA, to the extent it's a regulated device, FDA-regulated device. The state AG office of pretty much every state. There's actually what I call the Hydra, and we'll go through in the future podcast where there are eight 
different agencies, if you count the states as one uniform agency in their various forms, um, there are eight different agencies, just much like the eight-headed Hydra that has regulation over health application and healthcare and data privacy. Okay, so we'll start with numero uno. Right, but today the let's start with the FTC. The FTC, who have asserted that privacy and healthcare applications and healthcare marketing of applications is indeed a a marketing practice and a trade practice that's regulated by the FTC Act. As we all know, by way of background, Section 5 of the FTC Act gives the FTC very broad plenary powers to effectively bring enforcement actions against pretty much anybody that believes is engaging in deceptive or unfair trade practices. So developing an app that for some reason doesn't protect your privacy or doesn't conform with various standards and is deceptive is going to be under the power of the FTC. So the FTC, in its infinite wisdom and eagerness to help, put out earlier this month uh, or in July the best practices for mobile health app developers. So the best practices are you know a series of eight recommendations, guidelines, best practices, however you would want to call them, that it recommends all mobile health application developers follow and adhere to in order to kind of not fall foul of an FTC Enforcement Act. So there's nothing new about these. I think that's where we fundamentally start. Anybody who is familiar at all with developing applications or who is familiar at all with kind of marketing practices, advertising practices, collecting data, running a SaaS platform in any other field outside of healthcare is going to be very familiar with a lot of the content of these eight best practices. This has been kind of codified and tailored for healthcare. But in principle, there's really nothing new here that a good, prudent health app developer with good legal counsel helping guide them should not have been complying with anyway. So let's dig right into the actual best practices themselves. There are eight. And as I said, nothing here should surprise or shock any app developer out there. The first one is minimized data. Dating all the way back to the mid-2000s, when the FTC first started putting out data privacy protection recommendations and the data privacy protection guidelines and data collection guidelines, the maxim that you should never have data that you don't need has always, always been a fundamental recommendation. So this is nothing new. What does make it new is the intersection with HIPAA. Right, And so that was my question, because for a lot of healthcare attorneys that are sort of pure healthcare attorneys, when we think of data, we think of the 18 identifiers under HIPAA. So data here is broader than that, correct? Correct. But the 18 identifiers are still useful to keep in mind, because under HIPAA, if you have those, any of those 18 identifiers, you have PHI. Right. So the question becomes, do you need any of those 18 identifiers? And if you don't... Get rid of them. Then get rid of them, de-identify, aggregate, so that you don't have PHI. However, with the FTC, that's only the first step of the analysis, right? Because you can have other identifiers that are not PHI, but you still may not necessarily need, but you're collecting for other reasons. You know, it might be great to be able to market across and cross-sell on behalf of a pharmaceutical company, for example, to somebody using a specific healthcare app for insomnia. Right. And in large data warehouses and some that I've worked on, you can have a billion data points and actually none of those are considered PHI because they are not a medical record number. They're not a name. They're not a phone number. They're not an email address. 
data can be far broader than those 18 identifiers. Exactly. And this is where, again, I would go back to the LabMD case. And before that, the Marriott case that preceded it back in November of last year, where the FTC you know, assertive that has rights over to bring enforcement actions for anybody who collects data and is not reasonably careful in how they protect it or more specifically exposes the person from whom the data was collected to unreasonable risk. The question here is if you need that data and if you have a business reason for it, you're going to have to take steps to reasonably protect it. But what about if you think that you might need the data, but you don't need it now? That's exactly right. So my point is it's always a business call, right? And your business call is that I work with my clients on is really, do you need that data? That's step one. And if you don't need it, then why assume the responsibility to protect it? If you think you might need it, the question then becomes how soon? For what purpose? And do you really still think you need it or is it just a speculative? And if so, then you have to balance that against the fact that every piece of data you take is an extra point in the liability chain you're exposing yourself to. So really you have to be very careful and weigh that speculative, well, one day I may need it for this reason against the fact that Yes, one day you may, but today you have to protect it. Mm-hmm. You know, one day you may need it, but today you have it and you have to protect it. Is that something you are willing to take on that liability for? So again, the FTC's first principle is to minimize data. And then they do specifically go into HIPAA and cite HIPAA that once you've minimized data, can you, do you need it in an identified form or can you de-identify it in accordance with HIPAA and the de-identification rule? Principle two is, you know, another one that should be causing all app developers out there to groan with how obvious it is, is to limit access and permissions. Again, absolutely nothing new in this recommendation. This basically is the same old rule we've always had, which is if you collect data or if you have information that is accessible, then you should have in place physical, administrative, technical, security measures to limit who can have access to that and who has permission to use it and what they use it for. You know, you don't need every single person in your building to have access to that sensitive data. And to touch on that, under HIPAA, as you know, the minimum necessary rule means that even if you have access and are authorized to access PHI, you can still only access that amount of PHI, which is necessary in order to accomplish whatever goal you have. And only those people who are required to have access to that PHI are allowed access. Exactly. This rule should dovetail with that. If you have any PHI or you are in a HIPAA applicable area with your app in any way, shape or form, then you already have this requirement. And if you don't have PHI and you're not subject to HIPAA, you should still be following this requirement anyway. Good business practice. Well, good business practices and pretty much every state kind of statute, every state liability framework in which you're going to be faced if you have a data breach, if you have any type of security incident, not having reasonable access controls or reasonable security precautions is going to be exhibit number one in any claim of negligence against you anyway. So this is absolutely not new. Okay, so the third one is authentication. Again, not a new requirement, should be something that everybody is doing. If you have an app and you have limiting access, you are limiting permissions, you are 
limiting how people can use it. How do you authenticate that access? So obviously, the, you know, how do you use strong password requirements? Does your app require credentials to sign in? Have I signed in once and then anybody who has my phone or tablet after that can access all my data just by opening the, the app? Um, you know, and how do you secure that data access to the data once your app is in there? Again, nothing new. A good app developer should have had all of these principles in mind for the last several years anyway. Then a new one that actually is relatively kind of fresh that they put in is this idea that you are now responsible for the mobile ecosystem in which your app is working. You know, you need to consider if I'm using a mobile ecosystem and my app is being pushed out via, I don't know, the cellular carrier system or over a shared Wi-Fi system, is there a weakness in my app that can be exploited via that system? So my app has good authentication. My app has good security, but the second I transmit it from my app, you know, from a native device over to wherever my server is, because I'm hosting it and tying it to a software as a service platform, is there a vulnerability somewhere in my ecosystem on the way that I have not accounted for? Am I using encryption that's end-to-end to protect it while in transit? That type of question. Are you using someone else's code to build the app or enhance the app, and you're certain that that code doesn't have a backdoor? It doesn't have some vulnerability that you're not aware of. And why would the FTC care about that? Well, I believe the FTC are just trying to close one of the largest okay. weaknesses here, right? Man-in-the-middle attacks have become so common and so popular that it's become... You know, one of the largest vulnerabilities of which we're aware. You know, it's very easy to tell party A that they have to build a secure app and party B has to build a secure payment platform. But that doesn't work if party A and party B then use an insecure party C to transmit that data back and forward. And that's where a man in the middle attack can come in. So fifth principle, again, not a new one at all is just security by design. You know, we used to call it privacy by, by design. Security by design is just kind of a variation of that where we're talking about just as privacy by design was, you know, how do you develop a culture of privacy at your company? How do you design everything you do around privacy? Same thing. How do you develop everything you do around security? How do you develop kind of a culture of security at your company so that everybody's on board, that they need to follow the guidelines and keep everything secure? How do you incorporate security into every stage of what you're doing? You know, how do you make sure that every step for that data travels has been designed with a secure pathway in mind? You know, and how do you have a pattern of work? How do you have a process at work for making sure that all stays current? You know, you've designed it to be secure today. So if you design processes for making sure that tomorrow it's still secure and next week it's still secure and a year from now when Apple launches its new operating system and that has a vulnerability, have you taken account that mm-hmm. you will need to patch that and make sure that your app doesn't fall through any gaps? And that makes sense because it's certainly there to protect the consumer. Exactly. And so the last three are actually even more kind of general and more common sense and nobody should be surprised by any of these. You know, number six is pretty obvious. It's use existing vendors or as the FTC uh, phrase it, don't reinvent the wheel. There's very little value to be got in the security space and the consumer protection space from being the first. It, the first means that you're experimental. The first means that you're trying it. The first means that it might not work. So to the degree you can, use tried and true tested vendors. Use PCI certified vendors. Use HIPAA certified vendors. Use existing proven technologies when you can and innovate around them. Okay. Number seven, notice and consent has always been 
the FTC's main push. You know, how do you provide notice to your consumers? How do you tell your consumers what you're doing? How do you get consent from your consumers or users to what you're doing? And so the innovate how you communicate with users principle is again not a surprise. Apps are new. Using them in healthcare, there's a new way to use it in healthcare every day. It seems like as, as fast as a doctor or a physician comes up with a new way to provide a treatment or help improve, improve health or even just help improve general wellness, then that you have to be similarly creative in how you communicate with the users. If a user is using a wearable, for example, how do you make sure that you communicate with that user so the user has given the consent to what the wearable is collecting, knowing full well that the user is unlikely to read a piece of paper stuffed in the bottom of a, a package? So as fast-paced and innovative as this area is, the FTC's requirement is you know, make sure your notice keeps up with it. Why I've told my clients is what does this generally vague recommendation means? It just means put as much thought into being creative to make sure your your user understands what you're doing as you did into making the device work for the user in the first place. And finally, the last one, straightforward, pretty obvious. We uh, You brought this up earlier, Emily, and this goes back to your expertise. Don't forget that this is a mess of other laws. This is not comply with the FTC and you are out of the woods. There are so many different laws that you're going to be complying with, you know, whether it's HIPAA, whether it's the safeguards rule, whether it's a privacy rule, whether it's COPA because you are coming up with an app that allows under-13s to use it for childhood obesity, for example. You know, there is just a plethora of laws out there that overlap here. When especially if the individual creating the health app is a physician and they're sending it to an entity where the physician works or gets has some sort of compensation arrangement, then you have stark and anti-kickback issues. And there's also, I think, a lot of issues just related to general conflict of interest. Exactly. So that's that's a great sign-off point for us to be a little bit more uh, mercenary in our sign-off this week and say that's where a good, experienced health tech lawyer is absolutely invaluable and necessary. And even the FTC has said so. Straight from the horse's mouth. Well, thank you, Ian. Well, thank you, Emily. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.